Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our class this morning. All these classes that happen right now in this church to prepare our minds, our hearts, are giving us the ability to handle your word rightly, giving us the ability to give an answer for those who ask us why we have hope, why we believe in Jesus. Help us to defend the faith rightly, to evangelize to the lost rightly. Help us to always honor your name, proclaim your name, tell others the saving news of Jesus. Pray that you would help us with that this morning during this class time. Amen. The very first class we did this summer on the Christian cults, bad theology, was Jehovah's Witnesses. What was next? Second, Seventh-day Adventists. And what's their big problem? They have an issue with the atonement. They think Jesus is still making an atonement in heaven, the, only since 1844. Before that, they're not quite sure what he was doing in heaven. But they also are very legalistic. So they've added some laws to the gospel even with worship, requiring worship on Saturday, or you are going to go to hell. And they don't drink coffee. Oh, neither do Mormons. Sometimes they don't eat meat, too. What was, what was number three? Number three? This is number five class, by the way. What was number three? Christian science. What's their big thing? They're not Christian. They're not science. They're all about the healing aspect. They're kind of the prosperity gospel before it got going. It wasn't about money back then. It was just about getting well because they didn't have quite the understanding of microbiology and such. And so all diseases were just due to some issue with the spiritual realm. And you could fix that through Mary Eddie Baker's thinking, which came down to you just wish it away, basically. It's not real. Nothing's real, especially your pain and suffering. And then last week, we had a lot of fun. Scientology. Wasn't that fun? Just call it sci-fi. What was the problem with Scientology? (laughs) Everything, right? Their creation. We come from an alien 76 million years ago. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to live a billion years serving the master who's going to come back. They have a cruise ship. You can sign up. If you say that you're willing to contract for the next billion years, it's in the contract, right? So today we continue. It's not quite as, this one's not quite as sci-fi. It's not as new. Remember, Scientology was a very new. It was in the 1900s that it was made up. These here go back a long time, especially Unitarian Universalists. And these are much more serious in, in some sense. They're much more respected. In fact, today, I would say Unitarian Universalism is probably the most common Christian belief in America, even though most of them people who believe it won't be part of this denomination. They believe that all people will be saved. That's universalism. And they're either confused or reject the teaching of the Trinity. That's Unitarianism. So you have Methodists who would fall into that category. You have Baptists. You have a lot of different people inside denominations they were born into. They go to church this morning, maybe. But they don't believe in the Trinity. And they don't believe in Universe, or they don't believe that Christ is only going to save those who have faith. They believe everyone will be saved. That's Unitarian Universalist. However, both of those names there and that first denomination there has two words. Both of those come from a line that we're going to look at this morning, a branch that merges together. And then I threw in Unity Church at the end, not because they're huge, but since they get confused with Unitarian Universalists, and we have one right here in Bernie. Unity Church. I thought that would be interesting to cover if we have time. So a lot to cover this morning. Let's get started. But I think I want to reemphasize again, Unitarian Universalist is not as fun and cool as it was in the 1800s. Now you can be a Unitarian Universalist in any denomination. Nobody cares about theology pretty much. So you can hide 
And, and in the 1800s, you couldn't do that. You couldn't hide in a denomination. You had to go and join this denomination. Both of these boil down to liberalism, liberalized Christianity, and sort of a vague, God exists, we're all good, let's just be one with the universe. So here's their, the newest symbol. It used to look, look different, but now they've put the, the gay pride colors on their symbol there. That's a chalice or a cup with a flame coming out, a candle flame. And Unitarian Universalist is a denomination officially in the U.S. It's a combination of two of those historical movements that make up the name. And I know this is zoomed out a bit, but look at the dots. If I type in on Google Maps, Unitarian Universalists for this area. So we have uh, College Station on the upper right and then down through Austin, New Braunfels, San Antonio, and out in Kerrville on the left. Not all of these are Unitarian Universalists because Google kind of gets these confused which is many people do. Unity Church comes up as well. So the one in Bernie there, if you're coming up out of San Antonio on I-10, the one in Bernie is actually the Unity Church, not the Unitarian Universalists. So there's the big one in San Antonio. I think that's down on 410 and, and 10, somewhere in that area. You can't miss it if you go by. You, you look off to the left as you're going down into downtown and you see this building and it looks different architecturally. And it has their name on the side. That's their old logo still on the building there. Probably cost a lot there. Maybe they've updated it. But more recently, they put the gay pride colors and, and redid the logo. Here's their, their ministers there. The guy on the right, I'll show you a close-up of him. He was their previous minister. The one on the left is their current one. And then you have Reverend Nell Newton in the middle. So here's what their service looks like. They've got a choir. They've got their own hymn books. I think this must have been an Easter service. They've got the rainbow boxes or bags there, Easter baskets and such. Here's their previous Reverend Art Severance, their previous minister. He's a he-him. He's a he-him. And if uh, you probably didn't notice on there because you can't see it, but Mark Scabax is also pronoun he-him, and then there's she-her, and then there's he-him. So you can kind of see already what kind of where the denomination is at when it comes to gender, when it comes to what the Bible says, they, they pretty much will reject that. So let's look at the Unitarian movement. There's going to be a lot of church history. There has been in all of my classes this summer on this, because if you understand where they came from and what they believed, then it's, it's obvious where they're at today. The Unitarian movement began a long time ago during the Reformation. And according to one of their own who lived in the 1700s, He said that it began in order to restore primitive Christianity to what it was before it was corrupted. So remember, all cults and false teachers usually start this way. They say, well, we want to go back to the apostles. But then they don't pull out the Bible to prove their doctrine. So they say, it's all been corrupted. You know, they'll say Constantine, the Roman Empire corrupted it. The Greeks corrupted it. Philosophy corrupted it. The Trinity, these guys especially will say the Trinity is not in the Bible It was added after the apostles. So what we need to do is go back to the primitive. Primitive is just an older word for for old. You know, the first, the very first kind of Christianity. Even though we know the Trinity is right there in Scripture. You're going to see they're not big on Scripture. And so their goal, they say, was to reject the Trinity, go back to when people were Unitarian. When they believe just in God, but not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to do that, we've got to go all the way back now to the Reformation, to something called Socinianism. Because names change over time with these groups. 
And it wasn't until later they took on Unitarian. So let's look at Socinianism. Anybody heard of that? Anybody gotten really deep studied? If you read John Calvin, you're going to find talk about the Socinians. If you read John Owen, some of the Puritans write against this, even Jonathan Edwards. So the Socinian movement was part of the Radical Reformation. There's the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, Knox, the Puritans, and so on. And then there's the Radical Reformation. Some of these in Germany were the ones taking over towns and trying to to bring Christ back to the earth and rule and reign. Those were radicals. Anabaptists also radical because they rejected governmental authority. But these guys said, we're going to reject the doctrine of the Catholic Church, and we're going to reject all of it, even the Trinity. And the first guy to write on this during the Reformation, you might have heard of this guy, Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus. Anybody heard of him? Yeah, what's he known for? Supposedly John Calvin killed him, right? Just John Calvin killed him, therefore we shouldn't follow John Calvin. That's kind of the idea today. That's not really the way it went down. I talk about that in my church history class. If you go back and listen to my class on Calvin. Calvin testified against Servetus, but the city of Geneva killed him. And everybody wanted to kill him. All the governments of Europe back then. Here's why. He wrote two works on the errors of the Trinity and on the restitution of Christianity. So he said the Trinity was an error. He was writing about it. And he wrote this other book, Let's Get Back to the Original Christianity Without the Trinity. And then he was going from country to country, stirring these people up, Christians up, with this teaching. Now, back then, your religion was connected to the king or to the rulers or to the government. So anytime a group of people got stirred up, what did they do? Rioted. They picked up pitchforks. That happened in Germany during the... Luther, at first, he was kind of supportive of that. And then he went and saw what happened, where peasants were getting slaughtered and slaughtering one another, and cities were in chaos. And finally, he said, I don't have any of that. I don't support rebellion. I don't support that kind of reformation. Well, Servetus was hopping from country to country, and Calvin basically said, to to review that class, Calvin said, don't come to Geneva. They're just going to arrest you, and you're going to be killed. And he says, I don't care. I'm coming to Geneva, because that's where everybody's at. That's where all this reform stuff is happening. That's where the Calvin's Academy was. All these people are coming from other countries to be trained. And he said, I'm coming. He got arrested. He got executed by the government there in Geneva. So after that, other people who had come to Geneva, because so many exiles left the Catholic countries to come there, especially the Italians, they said, we're getting out of Geneva. If you held, let's say, unorthodox doctrine, heretical doctrine, and you see Servetus get killed, you don't really hang around in Geneva, even though up until that point, It was a safe place to be. They decided, it's time to get out of here. Let's go further north. Let's go to Poland. Let's go to Poland. So usually when we talk about church history, we don't go through Poland. But this is going to be a side tour through Poland. One of these men, who was an Italian exile, there with Servetus in Geneva, was named Faustus Socinus. Faustus Socinus. That's his Latin name. All these are going to be just our Latin names that we, we know now. I can't pronounce Italian or Polish. So, Uh, Faustus Socinus, he leaves with some friends of his to go to Poland. And we're going to find out that Faustus Socinus also rejected the Trinity. And he finds a place to spread that doctrine then in Poland. So there's Socinus there. Nice hairdo there going on. He'd come to Geneva with Italian exiles to get away from Roman Catholicism. They rule Italy. And that's one place Reformation really never got a good start. Because in Italy, you've got the Pope right there in Rome. And he's not going to let things like that happen in his area. So Faustus is reading some of his uncle's letters. His uncle 
left some letters after he died. And in those letters, Lilius, his uncle, denied the Trinity. And like any heretic who starts a cult, you basically come upon this idea and you think, wow, this is the neatest thing since sliced bread. Maybe Servetus and all these guys are right. We need to reject the Trinity. We need to reject the teaching that there's three persons in the Godhead. And so he denied that. He denied the deity of Christ when he wrote a gospel on John and John's works. He wrote a commentary, sorry, on the gospel of John. And then those who then followed him, they join up, they start a movement called Socinianism. So Socinianism is just Unitarianism in the 1500s. It won't be named Unitarianism until later. But in the beginning, they're followers of Socinus. They're called Socinianism. This becomes a European movement that spreads. Like I said, the Puritans will even be writing on it. Even Jonathan Edwards up in the 1700s, early 1800s, you'll see people writing against Socinians. That was their technical, historical name, I should say. So what do they believe? Well, in addition to what we just looked at, they rejected the pre-existence of Christ. So Socinians said Christ is not God. He did not exist before he was born on the earth. They hold that Jesus didn't exist really before conception at all. They denied inherited sin. This is a big thing for them, denying inherited sin. The original, we usually call that original sin. The problem is when we say original sin, everybody thinks of the first sin, right? That's the original one. It's not really the doctrine of original sin. It's better just to call it inherited sin. When Adam sinned, we all fell with him and that guilt comes on us, but we also will all now inherit that sin nature, that desire to sin. And so the Socinians and, and Unitarians and Universalists all today say that's not true, that's not biblical. Even though it's in Romans 3, even though it's in Ephesians 2, even though it's in Genesis, even though it's all throughout the Bible, they reject it. It just doesn't sound like a good and happy thought to believe that everyone's born a sinner. Of course, then you don't need a Savior. If, you, if you're not born a sinner, you don't really need a Savior. So they reject the atonement of Christ, the biblical atonement of Christ, which is the penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, he paid the price for us. That's where we get the word penitentiary from. Penal, he paid the price for us. He stood in our place, substitutionary. He, he took our place and died in our place for us. This also satisfied the wrath of God. That's propitiation. So already you can see here they, they've done away with the gospel. And you can see why the reformers were not happy about this and were always trying to write against this. They believe that God's knowledge, and this is very popular today, God's knowledge, his supposed omniscience, they say, is limited. Only to what would happen does God know, not what might happen. So it's only, in other words, what must happen, because God has said it would, but everything else, God's learning about it as he goes. He doesn't know what might happen. He does, in other words, this is to protect the free will of man, they say. God doesn't know what your choices will be. But he knows that a storm's going to come, and he knows that the earth should rotate this way, and he knows the things that must happen. But the choices that people make, God doesn't know that. And this is just what the open theists today say and the process theologians, which are the same thing. They say God is learning as he goes. They would say if it impinges on our free will, 
And this is common, not just with open theists, but many people, Arminians today. If it impinges on any choices that we would make, then that's something that is contingent on us. That's something that might happen, but doesn't have to happen kind of thing. So basically, if it touches on you, God doesn't know. So God knows all things in the universe, but not, not what you are going to do tomorrow. I'm not really sure exactly how they get there because it's not biblical. But you can understand, though, when you start with this idea that we must have absolute free will, and then we work out our theology of God from that, that's, that's what all philosophy and rationalism did. And so you can see how it, it doesn't end up sounding biblical at all. It sounds good to begin with. You know, hey, we're not robots, right? Let's start with that. And then you work your way out to the concept of God. Instead of taking your doctrine of God from Scripture and your doctrine of man from Scripture, and then if you have questions left over, kind of trying to work that out according to the scriptural boundaries. So then they're going to take on the name Unitarian. So that's, here's how that comes about. A follower of Socinius, this is a Polish name, Peter Gonesius, began the Polish Brethren. So he begins the movement, the church in Poland, called the Polish Brethren. Their, their official name was the Ecclesia Minor, or the Minor Church, Minor Reformed Church. So they start out saying, look, we're Reformed. We, and they did. They, they held Calvinistic beliefs. But it's not long before they start accepting Socinian teaching. Because Socinus was there. He was teaching. It spread. They picked it up eventually. And the Parliament of Poland in 1658 said, you're out of here. Get out of the country. Poland was still very Catholic. And they said, go. You, you must leave. Uh, or convert to Roman Catholicism. And, and a few did. But most left. They left Poland. So where did they go? Transylvania or Holland. So they go to those two countries because there's some freedom at the time, at least to hide out, especially in Holland, which had become much, very much reformed at this point. And in those two countries, they took the name Unitarian. Probably because if Socinianism is bad, let's get rid of that name. Because after all, that's just a name. Who cares about that? So let's reject the name and let's come up with a new name. What's the new name? Well, they believe that there's one God and that's it. There's unity in the one God. Not Trinitarianism, but Unitarianism. So they take that name on. They like that name. It sticks. That becomes the name of the Polish brethren who went to Transylvania and Holland. Of course, it doesn't stay Polish for long. It starts spreading in those countries. And eventually, it's got to make its way to England before it can get to America. So what did they believe? The Polish brethren, same as Socinus, they rejected the Trinity. So there's no talk of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only God. And even today, if you were to pull up the videos from these churches here in San Antonio, they would only speak of God. In fact, they speak of the Father, Mother, God. They speak of God in terms that are very strange to us. They believe Jesus was inspired by God in his moral teaching. So Jesus was just a man. He came to teach how to live. And God gave him that information, inspired him to teach that. And then Jesus is the Savior of mankind, but it's a different kind of Savior. It's not the Savior that we would know. He's not equal to God. So the only way you can get eternal life is through Jesus. But eventually they're going to say everybody gets eternal life anyway. And since sin is not really a big problem, then he's the Savior in a different way than what we say. Again, rejected that doctrine of inherited sin. So now it comes to, to the English language. It comes to, this is supposed to be John Biddle, not John Bible. John Biddle, that's his painting there of himself, portrait. He says, we got to bring this to England. 
England is, is getting an undercurrent going of, of Reformation. The Anglican Church has come about in the previous century, but it's not quite Reformed. It's half Catholic and it's half Reformed. So the Puritans are trying to stir up the people to make it more Reformed. There's all this unrest between the Parliament and the King. And there's all kinds of false teaching spreading at that time. And John Biddle says he's going to publish a book, the first one in English for Unitarianism. And he actually starts the church, the Essex Street Chapel in London. That'll come later. Sorry, he doesn't start it. That comes later in 1774. So Biddle brings in the first book that teaches Unitarianism. By the way, the the Puritans take over the country through the parliament in 1649, I believe. And so don't think just because you have godly leaders or Puritan leaders, the Puritans were in their golden age in the 1650s, early 1660s. But there's also an undercurrent of all of these heretical movements. So with freedom of religion comes opportunity for heresy. And that's okay. We like freedom of religion. But just realize that just because there's an Augustine or just because there's Calvin or just because there's Puritans who seem to get all the attention, that there's not also heretical movements always underfoot. Satan is always trying to stir up the church. And the more good stuff that's happening, the more Satan is trying to stir up the worldwide church. Uh, a man came along named Priestley. I've already quoted him, John Priestley. And uh, got a typo there. He was influenced many, he influenced many Unitarian ministers by his scriptural rationalism. So at this point, the Enlightenment was in full force. And Priestley says, we've got Unitarianism. Let's bring in some more rationalism, some more man, man's thinking, philosophy, materialistic determinism, and an emphasis on humanitarian Christology. So up until this point, they just said, you know, we reject some biblical doctrines. Well, the problem is if you reject the Bible, then what do you have to underpin your belief system? Now the Enlightenment comes along and says, man's rationalism. We can use that to interpret Scripture. Where do, we, where do we get all that today? That we can interpret Scripture the way we want, no matter what God says? That comes from rationalism. That comes from philosophy. Humanitarian Christology. In other words, making Christ the way we want Him to be, not the way the Scripture says. So you can read all about this. Good articles online on the Encyclopedia Britannica on this. So now it's got to come to America. Of course, all things come from England to America during this time. And the Puritans come over first. They set up these churches. And they're all congregational churches. So they they leave England. Because in England you have to be Anglican. And you can try to remain in the church and make changes. Or separate from the church. The Puritans who came to America separated from the Anglican church. They said, we've had enough. We're not going to suffer your persecutions. We're out of here. They went to Holland. Then they end up in America. And their belief was congregational rule, not the government, not the queen ruling the church, like you have in Anglicanism, not the archbishop. But we're going to set up churches that govern themselves. And so those are called congregational churches. There's still some in the U.S. They set up all these congregational churches. Jonathan Edwards being the most famous of those congregationalists. Well, as time went on, the grandkids of these Puritans, the great-grandkids said, we're tired of the old Puritan ways. They're stuffy. They're, they're too condemning. All this stuff about hell and sinners in the hands of an angry God. We want to bring in a new theology that is now spreading in the late 1700s, mid-1700s, 
called Arminian theology. It focuses a lot more on a person's free will. It focuses a lot more on our decisions. It denies some of these doctrines like predestination. And along with that, Unitarian beliefs come to America as well in the 1700s. And so even during Jonathan Edwards' time, the first great awakening, when people are getting saved, George Whitfield is getting crowds of 30,000 people in Philadelphia. What's being published? What's being spread under undercurrent there? Unitarianism. Arminian theology as well, but it'll take a little longer for that to have its effect on American Christianity. Unitarian, though, gets accepted real quick. Because the Trinity, here's the problem with the doctrine of the Trinity, right? It's not really a problem because it's in Scripture, but here's the problem. It doesn't make sense to the human mind, right? How can you have one God and three persons? And so we're called to believe that. You don't have to make sense of it. We're called to believe it because it's in Scripture. And we can define it and we can kind of outline it, but we don't know all the details. And mankind hates that. Mankind wants to know the details, right? We want to know everything. It's like today, we know very little about the brain, but you don't hear scientists or medical doctors talking about that, right? They act like they know everything about the brain. They know exactly the chemicals you need to take to influence your brain. Why? Because when you took it, it influenced your brain. That doesn't mean they understand how the brain works. We know very little about the capacity of mankind's brain or even the body. And so then, as today, people rejected the Trinity. They said it doesn't make sense to the human mind. It must make sense to us, our rational minds. We have to describe it philosophically. But this Unitarian, that's where all the smart people are. You know, in England, those guys, those Unitarians, those are smart. Those guys are sharp. You know, they have that cool British accent. Just kidding. Everybody had a British accent when they first came to America. But Unitarianism is a very much of an upper class thing. It's something that the scholars of the day, the seminaries start teaching eventually in England. You've heard of Matthew Henry, the guy who wrote that commentary. He was the son of a Puritan. You could call him a Puritan. He writes this great set, a commentary. He's, he's at his church for decades. After he dies, it's not long before that very church becomes Unitarian. So by 1800 in England, his church was Unitarian. This great Calvinistic guy who left all these volumes for people to take home, read through with their family, understand the Bible, becomes Unitarian. It is the cool thing, if you want to use that phrase, to be around the late 1700s. We go to now Harvard. Why was Harvard founded? To train Puritan ministers. Well, by 1805, Unitarianism is slipping in. And finally, this guy named Henry Ware, there's his portrait there. Henry Ware becomes a distinguished chair. It's like the Hollis Chair of Theology or something on the Harvard faculty. So in 1805, they, they finally recognize a Unitarian. He had been there a while, but they, they, they elevate him. And many of the pref- professors say that's their time to declare themselves Unitarian as well. So it's time we just all come out and they declare themselves Unitarian. So what happened to the people who were conservative, the Calvinists? They say, just like many times throughout church history, we're leaving and going to start our own seminary, which then goes liberal later. And it's funny, by the 1960s, the seminary, the Calvinists left Harvard to start, becomes part of Harvard again, and then later is training Unitarian Universalist ministers. So the reason they left, fast forward a couple hundred years, not even 100, 200 years, 250 years, it becomes Unitarian once again. And so by 1825, an official association starts 
for all of these Unitarians. They're gaining steam. If, if you can have distinguished professors in Harvard now, who was, that was once a, a Calvinist institution, that are now Unitarian, they've taken over that school, and they're on the upward trend. By the 1820s, 1830s, it is very good to be a Unitarian in America. That's where all the high rollers are. So, going back a bit, the first church founded in Boston from the Puritans who came over is called the First Church of Boston. John Winthrop, he gets off his ship, the Arbella. This is from their website, the Unitarian Universalist website. He gets off the ship. He steps on the ground. He writes this official act about a church being planted there. And he draws up a a charter for the city later. But they had this covenant for the first church in Boston. It's very Calvinistic. It's very biblical. It has a lot of, of good things. We, we have a church covenant here. What we expect that members will agree to and do for one another. And so here's what the Unitarian Universalists say today. Because they, they own this church today. They, the Puritans. They don't call them Puritans. But the, those settlers. They brought with them the progressive outlook. Which we carry on today. Though we no longer hold their belief in a single theology. You could say that, right? In other words, these Puritans, were, they were too focused. They were singular-minded on Scripture. We no longer hold that. However, the, spiritual of mutual, the spirit of mutual love and respect among the men and women who were our founders is a living part of our heritage. So they're trying to connect back to the Puritans. They're trying to say, look, this kind of idea of progressiveness, it's always been there. The Puritans were progressive. They left England to start a new country. And we're still there, even though they agree, no longer hold the same theology. So here is that church. Now it is kind of the mother church for the Unitarian Universalists. Their denomination headquarters is in Boston. And this is the oldest church that they own there in Boston. It becomes Unitarian in the 1800s. By about 1825, 1830, their pastor is Unitarian. He doesn't join the denomination when it starts in 1825, because he's kind of scared at the publicity, but eventually they do join. And so there's their newest building. It's burned down a few times and been rebuilt. They're about to get a new reverend here in September. They just voted her in there, I noticed on the website. Anybody famous that's a Unitarian? Here's some presidents you may have heard of. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, his son. Thomas Jefferson's interesting. A lot of people say he's just a deist. But he he seems to have some very specific thoughts on theology that go beyond deism. Deism is just, there is a God. He started it all. He sort of wound up the machine and stepped back. He's gone now. Jefferson had more thoughts on that. He had some thoughts on Jesus as a moral teacher. Jefferson's the one who cut out almost everything in the Bible and had just a, a little thing he put together. They tried to publish that last year or the year before. The Jefferson Bible, finally in print after all these years. Nobody bought it, so it's out of print again. He cut out almost everything. Jefferson didn't like, he didn't like anything about hell, salvation, sin, atonement. He just wanted the moral teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. Millard Fillmore, he was a U.S. president, and William Howard Taft. Anybody know those names? It's kind of famous biographies on John Adams and so on. Now, John Adams doesn't start out as Unitarian, so... You can read some stuff and it sounds like, man, this guy's pretty solid. He sounds like a Calvinist. But then later in his life, all of his friends are doing it. So, of course, he converts. And his son grows up 
and does the same thing. Other famous Unitarians, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who's that? Scarlet Letter. Yeah, other books. Alexander Graham Bell. What do you do? This is quiz time for history. Telephone. Charles Dickens becomes Unitarian, right? Lots of, lots of great books. Charles Darwin, he grew up Unitarian. It's, it's thought that maybe he was. He doesn't really come out and talk much about it. Later, he'll say he's not an atheist. He's more like an agnostic. But some, some say, now the, their website, the Unitarian Universalists, they have this long list of people they claim. I tried to do research to verify some of these before I listed them. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's he? Poet, writer, author, 1800s. He actually was a minister of the Unitarian Church. Elizabeth Gaskell. Anybody know her books? British. What'd you write, Amy? North and South. Some other books I haven't read. Young women books for that time. And women often like to read her books today. Her husband was a minister in the Unitarian Church. Her, they were good friends with Beatrix Potter, whose parents and grandparents were Unitarians. Now, Beatrix Potter wrote children's books and the little rabbit books and so on. She didn't talk about her religious beliefs, so I put a question mark there. But her parents and grandparents were Unitarians, and she never seemed to go a different direction. So question mark on that. The rest of these are avowed Unitarians. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. They just had a movie about his Christmas poem last year. My, some of my kids went to see that. Poet, American poet. Mer- probably America's biggest poet. Harmon Melville, what did he write? Moby Dick, yeah. Isaac Newton. Now, I've always heard Isaac Newton, you know, he believed in God. So all that he was studying about gravity and science, you know, he writes all this wonderful stuff about God in it. And, and you can use that sometimes to speak with an atheist. The problem is he wasn't the same kind of believer in God as we are. He was a Unitarian. N.C. Wyeth. Anybody know who that is? An artist, yeah. If you're, if you're more than 25, 30 years old, you would probably have read a book with his artwork. Most famous for the Howard Pyle artist that he, artwork that he did for the books, but many, many books. I can remember just in the 80s growing up, and his, his artwork was everywhere on book covers. Frank Lloyd Wright, architect. In fact, he designed a Unitarian church, and I think a lot of them that have been built since then have that same kind of influence, even the one in San Antonio, those angles, windows, rooftops. Rod Serling, we're getting into some of our lifetimes now, right? Twilight Zone guy. And Christopher Reeve, Superman. He left Scientology, and he goes to Unitarianism in 2004. He becomes a Unitarian. All right, let's talk about the other branch. So the Unitarians have a long history, kind of starts in the Reformation and builds up. Universalism, it's more vague. It's harder to define because all throughout church history, people have said that God saves everyone. So that's, that's universalism. The definition is that all human beings will be saved. They typically don't like the word saved because that implies atonement and sin. So they like the word reconciled. Both, both are biblical words. They just don't mean it biblically reconciled to God. All things will be reconciled and restored. In other words, they deny hell. They deny eternal punishment. And they hold that all people will be saved no matter their beliefs and practice. This is not inclusivism where people say, well, the Hindu doesn't know it, but he really will be saved by Jesus because Jesus is the only Savior. No, this is the belief. By the way, inclusivism is wrong. 
But this is the belief that it doesn't matter what he believes. And it's not Jesus saving him anyway. He'll just be saved by God. He'll be reconciled. So this has been popular on and off throughout church history. Origen was an early church father, and he taught this. That was rejected. Origen was in his teachings. And all throughout church history, universalism has been rejected. Because why? What does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The whole Bible is about having faith in Christ as Savior. Because we're sinners. Because we must have an atonement for us, the perfect sacrifice, that's Christ, the Son of God. They reject all of that. Not early on, Origen didn't reject all of that. He just said, well, look, God's a loving God. This is often how it goes today. God's a loving God. He must save everybody. Why would he send people to hell? So that's why you can have Methodists, you can have Presbyterians, you can have all these different people who say God will save everyone. The first time this comes in writing in English is, again, right before the Puritans take, take on England, 1648, Gerard Winstansley publishes the first work in English on universalism, The Mystery of God Concerning the Whole Creation, Mankind. So the mystery is that God's really going to save everyone. Just like creation will be restored perfectly, well, all people will be restored perfectly no matter what. And this really catches on, just like Unitarianism caught on, this catches on and spreads comes to America, especially by the work of a French Huguenot. It's interesting, Huguenots are Calvinists in France, and the Catholics don't like these Reformed Protestants, so they keep kicking them out and persecuting them in France, and they leave and go around the world. Well, this physician comes to America, George de Beneville, and he comes to America in 1741, so this is before we're even a nation. And he begins to preach universalism. So at some point, he goes from Calvinistic Huguenot to more of a universalistic idea of salvation. And the people that are really willing to listen to him are the German immigrants who've come to Pennsylvania. Later, he moves to to Philadelphia. Later, he'll go to New Jersey. But he starts out there in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And he's got these German immigrants who will listen to his preaching on universalism. And so he makes a translation for them or he pays for it to, to happen. From an old book in 1753, he, he gets this translated into English, and the book is The Everlasting Gospel. And the reason it's everlasting is because people are always going to be saved. They will always be saved. Everyone is going to be saved. And so now the German immigrants pick this up, and this begins to spread around New England. Both of these movements really spread throughout New England. It doesn't happen in the South. The South is much more conservative or Anglican at this time. These two men, Hosea Balu and John Murray, not John Murray, the reform guy that comes later. Lots of people named John Murray in history. These two guys say, well, let's start a church because universalism is not well liked in the denominations in America. Let's start the first official church. So 1774, there in Massachusetts, they start the first universalist church. So they organize after the revolution gets going in America. They, they now organize into this general society and general society of universalists. I mean, that's, you know, let, let's all get together because we're heretics. They didn't think like that, but that's basically what they're doing. They say, well, let's get together every year in 1785 and forward. In 1804, they come up with a name. Let's call ourselves the General Convention of Universalists in the New England States and others. And then in the 1830s, this thing just takes off, like I said, just like Unitarianism. 
the, the Universalist Church takes off, and they claim that it was the ninth largest denomination in the U.S. They claim that. I've never seen any proof of that. But these, these things were very popular in the 1830s. 1800s, the country is, is moving forward. It's becoming more successful. And everybody that's got money and power and wealth and wants to be very sophisticated joins these movements. There's one of the old churches there in D.C. So in 1899, they have a general convention. And here's what they believe. So what do universalists believe? It's kind of vague. It's fuzzy. They believe in God. They believe in Jesus Christ. They're not quite sure who he is or what he did. They believe that the soul is immortal. It will last forever since after God creates a a human, that soul will last forever. They believe that sinful actions have consequences. So we don't inherit sin. They don't believe that. They don't say a lot about sin, but it does have consequences. And they believe that all people will be saved. All people will be reconciled. So this is what unifies them, especially that last point, universal reconciliation. They founded three schools in the 1800s. So in their heyday, they found three seminaries. That's a divinity school. And in 1942, they said, hey, let's change our name. So they just began the Universal Church of America is their name since 1942. And all those divinity schools that they started have been closed down today because people stopped going. You know, if you, hey, I can be a, a regular denominational person and be a universalist. So why go to this special group or this special school? And so those closed down. No money, no students. And, and oh, this is a repeat here. Famous universalist, Benjamin Rush. Who's that? History time again. One of the founding fathers of America, Benjamin Rush. Susan B. Anthony, suffrage, women's votes, women's rights. P.T. Barnum, everybody knows P.T. Barnum, right? The circus guy. And Clara Barton, who's that? She was a nurse during the Civil War and served in many ways. Strange stories there. But anyway, these are, they don't have as, as big a list as the Unitarians, but they do have a list. They merged in 1961. They said, hey, we have a lot in common. Let's get together and form a new denomination. So these two associations and, and denominations merged together in 1961. What's their bad theology? Well, here's quoting them directly from their website. We have no shared creed. Our shared covenant supports the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Though Unitarianism and Universalism were both liberal Christian traditions. See, sometimes we think when we call people liberal Christians, not not in their politics, but in their theology, they're liberal, that they don't like that. But they actually embrace that. This responsible search has led us to embrace diverse teachings from Eastern and Western religions and philosophies. So basically, anything out there that's been believed can be part of this group now. So they do have, they they don't have scriptures, they don't have holy books, but they have Six sources of inspiration and guidance. Their personal experience. Words and deeds of prophetic people. These are prophetic utterances. Wisdom from the world's religions. And they even say, look, we know the religions contradict one another. We don't care. You can pick what you want. They say we we originally started with Jewish and Christian teachings because both of those groups that merged started from Jewish and Christian teachings. They also take in humanist teaching. Humanist is a group that denies the existence of God or or says we don't know. Uh, Think more philosophy, the enlightenment, and so on. 
And then spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions. So not just world religions, but they want to grab everything. So there's the major world religions, but then there's like animism and different tribal things in Africa and South America. Those are earth-centered traditions. So this is officially their six places that they get guidance. Here's what one of their reverends says. Throughout history, we have moved to the rhythms of mystery and wonder, prophecy, wisdom, teachings from ancient and modern sources, and nature herself. They have seven principles. Another one of the reverends says, the principles are not dogma, not doctrine. So don't think doctrine, like we have doctrine that we get from scripture. They're not, they're not, they don't even take those sources and make doctrine. They just say, believe what you want, but we are guided it's a guide. All of these things are a guide for those of us who choose to join and participate in Unitarian Universalist religious communities. First principle, inherent worth and dignity of every person. Well, everybody is going to be good with that, right? This is like the perfect American religion because anybody can belong. Anybody can be a part of it. And, and everybody pretty much would have to say, yeah, I kind of agree with the wording here for most of these, right? Who doesn't believe in the worth and dignity of every person? As Christians, we believe that. We don't take it like they do and act upon it in that same way, though. Who doesn't believe in justice, equity, and compassion? I mean, those are biblical terms, right? But they're going to do something else with it. They're going to make a religion out of it. Who doesn't believe in the acceptance of one another and encourage spiritual growth? Yeah, we encourage spiritual growth, biblical spiritual growth. But you can see how maybe a person who's grown up as a Christian and never really studied the Bible and been converted— never heard the gospel, maybe, in the church they grew up in, they can join something like this and be perfectly fine because it's about spiritual growth. You know, it's like the 12-step the method, you know? It's just there's a deity and he exists. And if we trust in him, he'll help us kind of thing. They don't use the word trust. But. Fourth principle, a free and reasonable search for truth and meaning. I mean, who could deny we should search for truth, right? The problem is Jesus said he's the truth. And sanctify them in truth. God's word is truth. Fifth principle, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and society at large. So they're saying we're democratic, they're congregational. Sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. We want that too, don't we, as Christians? We just realize it's not going to happen in this age, not before Christ comes back. Seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Yeah, a biblical Christian couldn't even sign off on that one. So, who comes into their churches? Atheists, agnostics, deists, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, humanists. And you might say, well, those are mutually exclusive. And they say, you're right. We don't care. Just come. They're big on inclusion, especially lately with the, the, the gay and, and the LBGT and, all, and so on. They really have gotten into that movement done many marches. There in the picture here, you can see, this is on their national website. You've got a, a Jewish guy there. What's the thing? Yamolka? Is that right? You've got a Muslim kind of over there. They have how to put on a hijab kind of instructions on some of their churches. They have classes on that. They're big on social justice. Sometimes we think, oh, we can't, you can't tell somebody they're all about social justice. Now, the people who are for social justice, they like that word. They like the word inclusive. They put it on their website. To attract people. When I said perfect American religion, I don't mean it's perfect according to scripture, right? It's perfect as a marketing tool to attract people. Here's what they say on their site. Justice is at the core of our faith. 
our congregation, our congregations are called to make a positive difference in our wider communities. We work to serve, to raise awareness, and to support and partner with people who face injustice. We advocate, organize, and act for justice to live out the values of our faith. What's the problem there? What's at the core of their faith? This, this thing that they're doing, right? This social justice. What's at the core of, the, of biblical Christianity? Christ, as revealed to us in Scripture. That, that Christ, not a made-up Christ. All right, let's move on. Here's, a, here's another church, very similar name, a, a little bit different in their beliefs. And I want to cover this because there's, there's one here, there's one in San Antonio. They're spread throughout the country as well. These are both American religions. The Unity Church grew out of the American Transcendentalist movement of the mid-1800s. Transcendentalists believe the ideal state for humans is spiritual and transcends the physical or empirical. So while the Unitarian Universalists are both rejecting the scriptures, they're rejecting doctrine, they're liberal Christians is what they started out as. The Unity Church says, we don't care about any of that. We're all about the spiritual. This is closer to maybe Christian science, closer to some of the other things we've looked at, Scientology maybe. Transcendentalism was a movement in the 1800s that says that the spirit is what matters and that transcends anything on this earth. We have to get to this transcendental state. There's, so there's the inside there. They've got all these symbols. That's their logo there on the wall. Oh, that's their reverend there. He says on one of the videos on their Facebook page, this is Jay Milkey, Milkey Unity Church of Bernie. He says, come, come join us. This is a day to celebrate ultimately the Father, Mother, God. Let's talk briefly about how they got started. Founded in Kansas City, Missouri in 1889, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore. So Mrs. Fillmore had TB. She had other problems, many health issues, and she was healed. And she said, that's spiritual healing that made me better. So they began to study. Let's figure this out. Maybe we can tell others about this. Let's study the world religions. Let's connect this concept of religion to science. So there they are, a little bit older there. Among their influences as they're studying, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Unitarian, Mary Eddie Baker, Christian Science founder, and some other folks that we're not as familiar with. So they're reading this, and they say, okay, now we're ready to start this new group. In 1906, they ordained themselves and seven other ministers. They say, okay, now we're ordained. Let's get a school to train ministers to go out and spread this. And then after World War I, they, they have 1,200 acres that they purchased, and they created their own town, Unity Village, Missouri. Anybody heard of them? Nobody? No Missourians? They don't have a lot of beliefs. It's just kind of vague. It's transcendental. They do have something. I, it reminded me of Scientology. They have the 12 powers. Faith, strength, love, imagination, power, understanding, wisdom, the will, order, release, zeal, life. There is the Unity Village, Missouri. Very nice looking facility there, 1,200 acres. It's our headquarters. They got serious about training up people and sending them out to take this new spiritual thing out to the world. Here's what they believe. They have a few principles. And they say the first principle taught in unity is that God is absolute good. Not that God is good, but that good is equal to God. That's what they mean. They're not saying God has an attribute of good. They're saying everything that's good, that's God. We live and move and have our being. Again, a reference back to the book of Acts, even though they don't really look to Scripture much. He's the energy within. And we're, we're living within His energy. 
It's very pantheistic. If you remember my class last fall on apologetics, I went through atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, panentheism. This sounds like a lot of that. We can know intimately our oneness with all. And then I guess I cut off the rest of the sentence. Unity describes God as a creative force operating in, through, and as each of us. So God is just this force. He's, he's like Star Wars force, right? Except there is good and evil. This is just a good force that's everywhere. And he's in you. And, and as each of us, we're, we're part of the force, which is equating people to God. Our work as humans is to integrate our divine nature with our human experience. So we're divine and we live out this experience on the earth and we're supposed to live those together. They're supposed to be in coordination properly. Unity teaches that there's one power and presence, but also utilizes the Trinity. So they do believe in the Trinity. Wait, not so fast. The Trinity is a metaphysical Trinity of mind, idea, and expression. So it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, people like to use the word Trinity because it has, they think, these spiritual connections. But the Trinity for them is the mind, the idea, and the expression. Or you could call it the spirit, the soul, and the body. Because they say we're, we are God and we are spirit, soul, and body. And so that's their trinity. As for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes, they said all are divine. But so is everything and everyone else in the universe. It's all God or one. So they say it's fine if you want to believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are just other expressions of God. But we you, me, are expressions of God. Not just expressions, but our God. Because we're all one force. What about Christ? Well, they say that Jesus is divine, but so are you. See, that works nice. Because you don't deny anybody's belief. And then you just turn around and say, I'm divine too. And they don't mean eternal like we do. They don't mean someday you'll be, have God's glory reflected forever and ever. No, they believe you're equal to God. And that Jesus was a great teacher. And the spiritual use of our minds was one of his lessons. Our creative power begins in spirit and is utilized in thought. And they say, when from my humanness I feel powerless and defeated, I can remember my divinity, my God-given Christ nature. So you don't have the nature of Christ. That's nowhere to, none of this is taught in Scripture. Epistemology is how you know something. The, the idea of how do we know what we know. And they say early unity leaders exhorted us to put down the books, including the Bible. Put that down. Take a break from the teachers and spend time in the silence, capital S. You need to spend time in the silence. I mean, I like silence. My house is pretty noisy, but I want silence to read my Bible and pray. They just want to be in the silence to direct knowing, to seek direct knowing of the divine. Unity would say that we read the Bible. This is all quoting from their website. We read the Bible intuitively rather than analytically. If something doesn't speak to you, it can be left behind but it can also be reinterpreted metaphysically, which adds a new layer of meaning to biblical passages that we know cannot be literally true. So somehow they know some verses can't be true and they can reject what they don't like. All right, last slide. Famous Unity Church members, Betty White. Who's Betty White? Actress, yeah. Maya Angelou, poet, author. Lucy Arnaz, is that how you say it? Arnez, yeah. Lucille Balls and Des- Desi. That's their, their daughter, famous. These are people who claim Unity Church and speak there. So what do we think about all this? It's a cult. 
Both of these are cults. A cult is someone who takes the teaching of Christianity and twists it, or they claim some connection to Christianity, but it's really not Christianity at all. And so we bring the scriptures to bear. The scriptures are what God has given us as our tool, as our sword. And we bring them to bear on people, not forcefully, gently speaking the truth in love. And I think you don't have to go far to find something to say scripturally because their stuff is so vague. Just, just pull out any verse, right? Start in Genesis 1.1, go to John 3.16, John 14.6. Just pull out anything from scripture that is true. And that can get you started with talking to these folks if they'll give you the opportunity. So I pray this has been helpful. Let me close in prayer this morning. Lord, we do pray for these who are lost in these cults. Sometimes there are people we know. Sometimes maybe people we love, family, extended family members. We pray that you would help them to see their error. We know that the Spirit can awaken dead hearts. We know that you can regenerate, that you can divinely call someone. And we pray that you would do that, Lord, especially for those that we know that we're praying for. Help us to speak boldly the gospel of Christ, to not be ashamed of Christ, but to tell others what your scripture says, to tell others of the the faith once held by the saints throughout all generations of the church. Lord, we have a wonderful gospel, and people need to know about it, including those in these denominations, in these cults. Help us to tell them, to love them enough to tell them of Christ and what he did for us. We pray that you would give us this boldness in the name of our Savior. Amen.